verses 9 to 74, verses 32 through 34. Yes, out of respect, but more just a sense of anticipation that God's going to speak. Let's stand. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Wow, those are encouraging words. This is God's word. You can be seated. Verse 32, we're going to be looking at one of the names there. Barak, Brock, Barak. Who is Barak? I didn't think anyone probably knows who Barak is, but here he is in Hebrews 11. Uh, let me just give us a, a little bit about Barak, uh, where he falls into the biblical story. First of all, Barak shows up in a period, the period called the Judges. Now, I don't know if you know much about this period, but in, in my opinion, this part of the story is, is a depressing part of the biblical story because here you have this cosmic thing that God is doing, how he chooses a people, the least, the smallest, how he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, takes them to a mountain in a desert, marries them. Then for 40 years, God disciples them, puts them through a boot camp in the desert so they can become holy as he is holy. God does all of this so he then can put them in promised land, which is right in the middle of the world. It's the world's main street. And there they can be a kingdom of priests declaring the praises of God. To the nations. And then Judges. And Judges describes the story of, uh, of this people that are supposed to be about, for lack of a better word, Project Eden. Because that's what God is doing. Everything that went wrong in Eden, in the garden, God wants to repair that. God wants to restore that. God wants the world to be a garden. And he's doing it through a people. Through a people who are going to reflect him and be him and put him on display to the world. And judges, they get in the land. It's like the lights go out. They forsake God. And they become like the nations around them. In fact, if you go to Judges right now, because we're going to be spending a lot of time in Judges, uh, Judges 2 described this forsaking of God and what it looked like. Judges 2, verse 10. It 
It says after that, the that being that they've just been placed in the land as a holy people to declare the praises of God to the world. After that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord. I wonder if discipleship didn't take place. Did fathers not disciple their sons and daughters? But all of a sudden, this next generation neither knew the Lord nor what had been done for Israel. Just one generation. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him, and they served Baal and the Asherahs, and in his anger against Israel... The Lord gave them into the hands of oppressors who plundered them. He sold them into slavery. God's people are right back in Egypt again. And who sold them into slavery? God did. Some of you have a problem with this. What does every loving father do with their sons? They discipline them. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Sorry about this. I didn't mark this this morning, but I'm going to turn there and read this. Every father should be uh, reading these verses. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the the Lord disciplines those he loves. And as a father, the son in whom he delights in. Coaching football right now, I I, I can just see it. I, I, I can see it in these eighth graders' eyes. I can. They haven't been loved. Because they haven't been disciplined. So much non-parenting going on today. And even in our text, Hebrews, Hebrews uh, 12, the next chapter, uh, picks up on this very theme. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. This is Hebrews 4, then verse 5. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. For it says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline because God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, you are not legitimate and true sons and daughters at all. Discipline is a form of love. Every parent who loves their child is going to discipline them. And so when God's discipline comes into my life, I oftentimes think about Romans 1 because another form of of, 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 of God, how he responds to us sometimes. In Romans 1 it says, and he just gave them over. He just gave up on them. 
You want to live that way? You want to indulge in that kind of perversion over and over and over again? Okay. And so when God disciplines me and I can feel his discipline in my life, I always think to myself, would I rather have Romans 1 where God just gives me over, in a sense gives up on me, or do I prefer Hebrews 12? His discipline. And then I think about 1 Peter where it says, humble yourselves under God's almighty hand. Because in due time, that hand will lift you up. And this is what's going on in Judges. God's a father. Israel is his firstborn son. And go to, go to Judges 4 now because this is going to be the bulk of what we're going to look at this morning. And here's the context of Barak. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, that's a former judge, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. So here, they are. here, here it goes again. They get sold into the hands of another oppressor. And Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, the people of God cried out to the Lord for help. Here's the question for God's people. When God takes them out of the desert, puts them in the land, in the center of the world, so they can declare the praises of God to the nations, the question is, though, who's going to shape who? Is Israel going to shape the nations around them, or are the nations around Israel going to shape Israel? And you come to Judges uh, chapter 4, and we see, again, the nations are shaping Israel. Israel's conforming itself to the nations around them. She's being Canaanized. So then, verse 2, here comes God's discipline, and it's intense. 20 years they're being oppressed by the Canaanites. 20 years. And then it describes the Canaanites with their 900 chariots. The word chariot here is Merkava. Merkava is today the name of Israelis' main battle tank. Because chariots in that world are the equivalent of a tank. And it says they're made of iron. Iron means very little to us because we live in the age of steel. But remember, a whole age, a whole epoch is called the Iron Age. And we're only in the Bronze Age. Yet they have iron, which tells us how technologically advanced they are. 20 years of this, and Israel cries out to God, verse 3. And this is the repeated cycle that you see in the book of Judges. First, Israel sins, forsakes God. This then is followed by God's discipline, which usually comes in the form of an oppressor, which results then in Israel crying out for God. Then God sends a judge or a rescuer because God is a father. His heart is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in Loving kindness and grace. 
And now look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidot, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. The prophet, prophetess, Deborah, God raises her up. A prophet is someone who gets the very words of God. Thus saith the Lord. In fact, in the ancient world, the, the words of God were oftentimes called oracles. Oracles were a, a special kind of, of word from God. They, they, they weren't laws from God. They were more prophetic words from God about the future. Now these oracles could pertain to anything, but namely they were given to settle disputes and predict the future on matters both big and small. So you can imagine just the high demand in the ancient world for these oracles. That Gabe and I uh, just got back from Greece and we went to this uh, place called Delphi. Has anybody heard of Delphi? I mean, Delphi is the granddaddy of, of, of oracles in the ancient world. It's, uh, it's perched high up on one of the tallest mountains in Greece. Because here, this, this town sat as like an axis mundi, that, that, that place where heaven and earth met. And for a thousand years, Delphi was the religious center of the Greco-Roman world. And the Vatican to the god Apollo was here. And Apollo is the god who predicts the future. So for a thousand years, Greeks and Romans came from all over the world, traveling, sacrificing their lives sometimes, paying large sums of money to get these oracles. I mean, even Caesars would, would, would come with their uh, just huge amounts of gold and silver to get an oracle, predict the future. Are we going to win this war or not? Now, I like this because here's Deborah. The text says she sits under a palm tree. Trees, too, in the ancient world are, are, are like the Axis Mundi, the tree of life, this place where heaven and earth meets. And here Israel comes to get this special word from God. In fact, even Deborah's name means honeymaker. And the root of it is DBR. And this DBR root is, is, is the same root for to speak. It's the same root for word. Because God's word is, is honey. So Israel comes to Debar, Debarah, to get the Debar of God. Now, I don't know what you're thinking right now, but I love God in this sense, too. He's so contextual. Meaning he can take things from our world like an oracle or an oracler or like temples or tabernacles or holy of holies Things that are already in the world, but bankrupt and empty. And rather than saying, that stuff's all a bunch of baloney, 
He instead takes it and says, let me be the real thing. And so while Delphi is a sham, Deborah's getting the very oracles of God. And one day she gets a doozy. Look at verse 6. Send for Barak. Because this man will lead Israel into battle against Sisera and his 900 chariots. Now one thing I don't think we see is just the sheer impossibility of, of this task that is presented to Barak. Yes, I told you about the 900 chariots, which is a very impressive force, but then you keep reading and you see that, well, Israel has its 10,000, so we could kind of conclude this is a pretty evil battle. But here's what you need to know. Israel doesn't have iron. Israel doesn't even have bronze. Because hundreds of years, even after this event, the Bible tells us another story about King Saul and his son Jonathan and the Israelite army going to battle against the Philistines. And it says only Saul and his son Jonathan have a spear. And then you go to Judges 5, uh, verse 8, which Judges 5 sings a song about Judges 4. And it says, not a shield or a spear among them. And so this army of 10,000 take on these 900 iron tanks with their kitchen knife. I mean, this is David and Goliath all over again. This is... This is the weak versus the strong. This is the mouse taking on the lion. Yet God says, sin for Barak, because he is going to lead this mouse into battle against this lion, and I, the Lord, will give him victory. And Barak is supposed to trust that. He's supposed to trust that God is going to do the impossible. And I want you to consider what's at stake here. His life is at stake. 10,000 lives of his his kinsmen are at stake. And some of you are there today. You're facing something that's just so beyond you. Something that makes you feel so weak and so impotent. And for some of you in this situation, it, 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 it almost seems like an impossibility. You, you, you can't imagine how you're going to make it. And then you look around and and, and you see what's at stake in this situation. And it's not just you, but it's it's others. And and the Bible says, by faith, Barak. Because this is what faith is. Faith is trusting God to do the impossible. And you and I have the luxury, at least the perceived luxury, of living almost all our lives within the realm of human possibilities. 
We love that place. And even if life gets hard, even if it feels really uphill at times, we still have developed this mindset that I know I can do it. I know I can push through this. I know I can make it up the hill. I know I can survive this. And I'm going to tell you, that is not biblical faith. Because when we think this way, we're still trusting ourselves. Biblical faith is when we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of our resources, when we come to the end of our strength, when we come to the end of our righteousness, and we come to that place where we just say, I can't, I can't do it. I can't. I can't. That's so un-American. But when we get to this point where we say we can't, there's now the possibility for real faith in God to take place. I can't. But you can. I can't see how this is going to work out. But I know you can see it. That's faith. That's what it means to walk by faith. And look at verse 8. Barak, when he gets this oracle, Deborah sends for him and, and tells it to him. Barak said to Deborah, he said, if, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And Deborah says, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. I don't know how you see verse 8. I, I mean, one, I, I know we can deduct this, that, that Barak is scared. And I think we should say, of course he's scared. You'd be scared too if, if you were put in this situation. And, and, and true faith doesn't mean the absence of fi- fear. Just like true faith doesn't mean the absence of doubt. Because true faith isn't our feelings. True faith isn't our emotions. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the Israelites walked through the the, the Red Sea, that, that wall of water on each side. I'm sure every emotion was packed between that water. Some people were fired up. Some people were joyfully dancing. Some people were scared out of their minds. Some people were doubting. Oh, no. But they walked. Because faith is not a noun. It's not just something we know. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Faith is a verb. By faith, they walked. And see, I know other people see this request of Deborah. Deborah, I can't do this unless you go with me. Uh, I, 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 commentator after commentator after commentator highlighted how this was weakness on Barak's part. Kind of like, come on, dude. 
How dare you ask Deborah to go with you? That's, that, that's just weak. And that's how we think in our part of the world because in our world, everything is about the individual and how capable an individual can be and how strong and powerful and, and, and talented an individual can be. So, so in our part of the world, we're really uncomfortable with weakness, whether it be our own weakness or the weakness of others. So most of us have been taught most of our lives, don't be weak, don't show weakness. And if you are weak, then cover it up and hide it. Fake it till you make it. And I'm telling you, this Western garbage has infiltrated the church. Causing the church to be filled with a bunch of phonies. Who are dying inside. You know how comfortable this book is with weakness? Do you know that this book assumes weakness? It affirms weakness. It, it shows us how God is always using weakness, moving towards weakness, exalting weakness. And in the end, the God himself becomes weak. He becomes the weakest of all which is why Paul, too, when the gospel is spreading into the West, into the Greco-Roman Empire, and, and, and these Westerners are coming into the church, bringing their Western mindset that you can't be weak, you can't show weakness, and doggone it, our pastors need to be superstars. Paul says, okay, you want me to be a superstar? Then I'll start talking and bragging. I'll brag about my weakness. I've learned that when I'm weak, oh, is Christ strong? Barak's weak. Barak knows he's weak. But see, weakness is only weakness when it's covered over and hidden. When we acknowledge weakness and we bring weakness to God and to God's people, our weakness then is exchanged for strength. And faith is not an individualistic thing. It's an us thing. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've needed a Deborah, a Moses, a David. When my faith feels so weak to be inspired by them, to be infected by their faith. Hearing Reese this morning, that inspires my faith. Watching so many of you in this church and the stuff that you've had to go through, the stuff that you've had to endure, but, but watching your, your, your faith, it, it, it so inspired me. Mark 2, there is just a stunning story. Jesus is in some house teaching. The crowd is so great that you guys know the story, many of you. There's these four friends who have this friend who's a paralytic. They literally carry him. Shoot. There's no way we're going to be able to push through this crowd. Somehow they get on top of the house, carve out through the ceiling a big hole, and lower this paralytic man to Jesus. The text says... Jesus looked at them and saw 
their faith and said, your sins are forgiven. In other words, it was, it was the, the faith of this guy's friends that caused Jesus to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. That's stunning to me. And here's the deal. I need you. I need you. We need each other. Because faith is not all about me. Faith is not all about you as an individual. Faith is about us. One of the most moving scenes for me in Lord of the Rings. And if you know one of the main storylines of Lord of the Rings, uh, there's, there, there's this character Frodo who has to bear the burden of, of, of taking this ring to Mount Doom. And Mount Doom is this picture of hell. And, and, and the ring is, is, is like this curse that's just weighed heavy upon him. But what Frodo has is he has a community. He has a fellowship of people around him. And even better yet, he has Sam Wise. He has a true friend. They get almost to, to Mount Doom. Through one miracle after another miracle... But they almost get to this spot and then Frodo just collapses in despair. He's in a place of utter hopelessness where he can't take another step. And Sam Wise, his, his friend, is there with him and in all his exhaustion, I love what he says to Frodo. He says, Frodo, I can't carry that ring, but I can carry you. And he literally picks Frodo up. He carries them the rest of the way. There are days when your faith is going to have to carry me. There are going to be days and seasons when the faith of this community is going to have to carry you which means the most important thing that you and I can do is not just come to church and listen to sermons, but to place ourselves in a community of people where we're known and where we know others, where we're loved and we love others. Because faith is not a me thing. Faith is a, it's a we thing. The story is awesome. Look at verses 13 and 14. First in verse 10, it says, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. These are two tribes, and 10,000 men went up under his command. And Deborah also went up with him to keep her promise. And then look at verses 13 and 14. Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoim into the Kishon River all his men and his 900 tanks fitted with iron. And then Deborah said to Barak, Go, for this day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak walked down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. I just love this picture. I love it. 
Because here are, are, are 10,000 men with their kitchen knives going into battle against 900 tank-like uh, weaponry. This is David and Goliath, but it's better than David and Goliath because it's not just an individual against an individual. It's a whole people against a whole nother group of people. And this whole community had faith. They trusted God with their lives and they're leaning on Barak and Barak's faith as Barak is leaning on Deborah and Deborah's faith. And in all of this, God sees a community of faith A community of people who trust God to do the impossible. And by faith that day, they walked into battle. By faith that day, they ran into battle. In one single verse, look at 15. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and the army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. That's all that's there. Huge battle. One verse. Now, if you read the song in the next chapter, chapter 5, you you understand what God did. God sovereignly prepared a storm that created a flash flood uh, that created uh, all these chariots to get stuck in the mud. They're useless. Just like the waters made Pharaoh's chariots useless. When we put our faith in God, we are not putting our faith in blind fate. But we are putting our faith in a God who is the best imaginable father. Who's going to discipline us when we need discipline. He's going to rescue us when we need to be rescued. Because he's good. Do you know how this story ends? Pretty amazing. Sisera actually has to ditch his chariot. He runs from the battle. He runs into this small Bedouin tribe. The wife of the chieftain of this tribe is almost like waiting for him. She invites him into her tent, breaking all the rules of hospitality. A stranger, a strange man is never supposed to go into a woman's tent. Then the text kind of makes a mockery of this general because Yael, this, 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 this woman who invites him into her tent, kind of treats him like a little boy, gives him his milk and cookies, and then tucks him in, and he goes to sleep. And then while he's asleep, Yael just finishes him off. And all of this now fulfills Deborah's prophecy in, in verse 9. And so what some of you should be asking, if you know this story well enough, why is Barak the one who's in Hebrews 11 and not Deborah and Yael? Because even the song that's sung in the next chapter in Judges 5, it praises Deborah. It praises Yael. Barak is hardly mentioned. And here you have this man between these two great women. And let me just take a moment right now to say how the Bible so exalts women. In a culture that demeaned women, 
Not so with God, not so with the Bible. Women throughout the whole story are exalted by God. Woman is the last and crowning uh, act of creation. Woman is the means by which salvation is going to enter the world. Women are the first to hear about uh, the resurrection. Uh, In this story right here, it's two women who are exalted as heroes. So then the question is, why is Barak in Hebrews 11? Because faith is unnoticed obedience. Barak doesn't need to be the hero. Barak doesn't obey God to get the praise of men. Barak doesn't risk his life so that songs can be sung about him. Barak simply trusts God with his life and the life of 10,000 men because God said it. And when God says it, we do it. And that's faith. Real faith recognizes that everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that God does in us and through us, it's all God. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 23. God did it. God's the one who did it. And we live in a world today that says, I did it. I scored the goal. I got the A. I earned the promotion. I achieved my status. I'm the one who's made myself into a good person. It's all I, I, I. God says in Jeremiah 17, cursed is the man who trusts in himself and is in his own strength. He's cursed, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and the Lord who is his trust. Which person are you today? As we've been saying, as we've been going through Hebrews, there's only one hero And see, when God is the hero of the whole story, it means that you and I don't have to be the hero. In fact, if Christ is the one and only hero, it doesn't matter what our role is in the story. And this is the mark of true faith. When it's not all about me. Or how good I am. Or how well I perform. Or me making the grade. But true faith is, I can't. But Christ can. Because all these stories that we read about, they're they're powerful pictures that point us to the ultimate story. They point us to the ultimate judge. They point us to the ultimate rescuer. And I don't know if you know, even where this battle in Judges 4 is fought, The guardian city of this valley where this battle is fought is called Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo in English is Armageddon. Anyone know what Sisera's name means? Snake. What did God promise Eve? God said, a descendant from you, Eve, will one day come and crush the head of the snake. What does Yael do? She crushes the head of the snake. Do you know what her name means? The Lord is God. And the Lord is God. 
And through Christ he wins because Christ came to the world to make war on everything that ails us. Sickness, disease, the curse, sin. And namely he came to crush the head of the evil one. And you know how he did it? He became sin. He took it. He bore all sin and our sin crushed him. And in being crushed, he crushed it. He crushed evil by absorbing evil into himself. And and through it, he then exchanges his righteousness for our sin. He exchanges his strength for our weakness. He exchanges his immortality for our mortality. And yes, that final battle awaits when when someday he's going to come once and for all and crush the head of the evil one. Until that time, we fight. And some of you right now are feeling beat up. And especially weak today. I want to end by doing something that we don't do here a lot. If that's you... Right now, you're just, you're, you're feeling crushed, beat up, weak. Would you please stand? First of all, for those of you who are standing, it feels good to not stand alone, doesn't it? And you're not alone. You know what? There are so many seasons in my life. In fact, I right now, in many ways, am standing with you. Feeling weak. Or family. You who are standing are not alone. Your weakness is our weakness. Our strength is your strength. We stand with you. As God moves some of you, would you just get from your chair right now and find a brother or sister and and, and put your your arms around them or your hands on them? Uh, We're going to pray for them. So... God, it's just not a fun place to be when we feel weak, inadequate, especially in a culture that says we have to be strong. And sometimes we even start to think to ourselves, what's wrong with me? Like, why do I feel this way? Or what's wrong with my faith? Like, my faith isn't supposed to put me in this position. And yet, as Paul said it, he says... God, I pleaded with you to take that weakness away, but you just came back and said, my my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power. My power is made perfect 
and weakness. Which is why Paul then can say, Therefore I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So God, it's with joy this morning that in our weakness, we join others who have stood this morning declaring their weakness. And God, we want you to see a church this morning that acknowledge is that it's weak. It says we can't. But by faith, you can. Come. Move. Be a father to us. We're your sons and your daughters. Discipline us in your love where we need discipline. Rescue us where we need rescuing. We pray all of this, not just as an end to itself for ourselves, but that you would bless us so we could bless those around us, that you would redeem us so that we could be about redeeming a world that you love, that you could reconcile us and transform us so we could be agents of reconciliation and transformation in our world. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.